Hi, I'm Zach Mander. And I'm Dom Fay. And welcome to So What, the show from Origin that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and explores the solutions that exist today. Zach, so far in this series, we've been talking a lot about the grid and how we shift our entire network to renewables. But an important part of this transition is actually about changing what we do as consumers. And not just at home, but in our workplaces as well. I do have a list of things you could change. Can we get to that later? We might need a separate podcast, actually. It's, it's a long list. Well, the thing is, Zach, not everyone gets to sit in a comfy air-conditioned studio like us. Yeah, why do you have it set so low in here? It feels like the North Pole. That's exactly what I was going for. Doesn't it feel a bit festive? You say it's because the equipment has to stay cool, but I think you've got an ulterior motive. Okay, fine. Maybe the air conditioning temperature in here is the first thing we need to change. But if we want to hit net zero, we need a lot more. For a start, heaps more businesses need to make an energy switch. And so I thought today we should explore one of Australia's biggest businesses of all, sport. Is this just a plan for you to be able to talk about the Brisbane Lions? Well, they did have a pretty good year, and sure, we could spend 10 or 20 minutes talking about their two great finals wins, or maybe that Lockie Neal was robbed of another Brownlow medal. But no, what I actually wanted to talk about first was a sport which is likely to see more change than most through the energy transition. So we pull up to the start line. So we're sitting at the start line for maybe a minute or so beforehand. Um, so it's all pretty pretty quiet at, at that point. Um, there might be a couple of words between myself and my co-driver about that stage. So Zach, this is Molly Taylor, and Molly is one of Australia's best rally car drivers. This is what her sport currently sounds like. And then when it gets to uh, about 10 seconds to go, um, I'll put the car in gear and then switch on uh, launch control. And, and stage mode effectively, which puts the, the engine into its, um, yeah, it's the high, high performance mode effectively. Um, and then with about three seconds to go, you can just put your foot flat on the accelerator, hold the hydraulic handbrake um, so we don't go too soon. Um, and then you're just, just waiting for that um, yeah, moment where you can lift the clutch off and find the bite point. Two, one, go. 550. And then, yeah a lot of noise, trying to get to second gear as efficiently as you can because you usually have a lot of wheel spin off the start so it's all about trying to manage um, the road speed and the wheel speed to get that perfectly and by that point the, the co-driver Slow five left, 20. is yeah, reading the first note so you're listening to the first instruction that's, that's going ahead and going up through the gears and then as soon as that corner's done on to the next one so there's a lot of uh, like gravel and rocks and stuff that have been thrown up underneath the car so you hear any bit of that hitting the bodywork as well. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty cool. Molly Taylor is someone who you could probably say was born to race. Her parents were both involved in rally driving, and from a young age, she was very competitive. I guess you could say she was tailor-made for racing? Exactly. So definitely, I guess that, that competition side has always kind of been in our family, but for some reason, I was obsessed with horses when I was little, and all I wanted to do was yeah start riding when I could and um, I wanted to be an Olympian eventer was my sort of career goal you know when I was in those primary school years um, so when I did yeah try try rally um, I think it was a bit of a shock sort of to the family that I decided to, to switch but yeah upgraded I guess from one horsepower to a few hundred. 
Rally driving is quite the upgrade from just one horse. And even the speed of horse riding is a little bit fast for me, Zach. I'm not much of a thrill seeker. Yeah, remember when you told me that you'd quit your job if we made you go on a roller coaster? And I still stand by that. I mean, I'm not unreasonable. I would go on one if maybe it didn't go upside down, was fully enclosed and went maybe a quarter of the speed. I think you're describing a train. And what's wrong with a train? Nothing. It was a great afternoon, but I don't think Dreamworld would make much money with just six trains. Well, anyway, look, Molly's a little bit more into adrenaline than me. She still remembers the first time she jumped in a rally car and what she loved about it. Oh, it was just so much fun. Um, it was just, I guess, the sensation of the car sliding around on the dirt. I just, yeah, I thought it was, was really, really enjoyable. And I, I mean, I wasn't any good. I didn't jump in and had this this sort of hidden talent I jumped in and I was very average um but I I just really enjoyed it and I could see you know it was a skill it was something that you could learn and and a a craft you could build on and um, we really liked that challenge as well fast forward a few years and many kilometers and after some time racing overseas in 2016 Molly actually won the Australian rally championship the biggest gong in Australian rallying but I think for me as well coming back to compete in the Australian Rally Championship. It had been what, you know, I grew up watching my mum compete in, and she's won four titles um, as a co-driver. So, yeah, to, to actually be standing on the top of the podium, um, you know, not just winning your category, but winning the, the rally, um, yeah, it was, was very, very surreal. And it was my first year back in doing the Australian Championship. So it was, um, yeah, that, that was a very, very special moment. Molly sounds like one of those great Australian sports people, but why are we talking about rally? It seems like a sport that's very carbon intensive. Well, I am getting to that because you're right. What many people love about motor racing is the roar of the engines and all of that horsepower flying around the track, or in the case of rally, through a forest. Yeah, so I mean, in rally, it's it's all done on closed forest roads, so we're completely in the elements. It's not like a racetrack where you have... A runoff and and you know special barriers built for particular corners you're literally in the forest so it's whatever the elements are around you is what they are and um yeah i think you learn that the the trees normally win the the argument if, if, you're, if you're having that um altercation so yeah we try and stay away from them wow okay well i think i'll stick to city driving less trees in the middle of the road still some just less Certainly does help when you're trying to make your way through Pekauer, but look, as you may have guessed, motor racing is a sport at a crossroads. Because electric vehicles are coming, and they're coming fast. Most manufacturers are now working on some kind of electric vehicle, and it's forcing major championships to reconsider how they operate. I love the sound of engines and um, V8s, or in rally, the the turbo whistle and and all that sort of stuff. Um, But it's, you know, electric is different. Um, so we don't have all of that for sure. And I think that's what a lot of people have been worried about losing. But there's so many other elements um, and other ways that this is really exciting. And we can see now with more and more categories, I mean, the World Rally Championship going to hybrid um, technologies, they bring something really, really cool to the table. As Molly mentioned, the sport itself is changing. The World Rally Championship is starting to transition towards hybrid vehicles. And there's also Formula E, which is basically an electric version of Formula One. So what does someone like Molly do if her whole identity is wrapped up in this sport that's at a crossroads? Well, during COVID, Molly heard about a new type of electric racing, an off-road championship called Extreme E, started by one of the founders of Formula E. And as someone who cares about the environment and is a bit more of an adrenaline junkie than me, Molly knew she had to sign up. So when I heard about this concept that we're going to start 
to try and make some off-road electric series. I, I saw that in the works and thought that, you know, that's that's me, <laughs> that's me all over. And um, yeah, and then it was, it was really around uh, the pandemic, we were down into lockdown and that all started to to gain momentum and um, uh, yeah, then I basically was calling around to as many people over there as I knew and, and trying to find out what was going on and, and put my hand up and, and see how I could be involved. And um, then, yeah, when we were in lockdown, I got a, got a phone call from Nico Rosberg, our Formula One World Champion, um, who basically said, I'm starting up a team, are you in? And, and that was it. <laughs> Okay, so how does Extreme differ from traditional rally racing? Well, Molly says you're driving in a circuit on your own, which is one of the biggest changes. So nobody's there yelling directions at you? Not at all. You're completely on your own. Just like me at movie night again last night, Zach, when you failed to show up. Oh, was that last night, was it? I've become used to you not showing up at movie night, though, but getting used to driving in a rally car by yourself is a different thing altogether. So you have to remember exactly where you're going and how to tackle the track. But what makes Extreme so interesting is that the championship happens around the world in places that are most likely to be affected by climate change. Um, we're basically travelling to remote parts of the world that have been impacted by climate change to to use that as a platform to really showcase what's what's going on. Um, and in saying that, that means there's no there's no track. <laughs> um, often, like there's no roads. We're just they literally setting up a course. In, in this, you know, whether it's like a dry riverbed or in the middle of the sand dunes or wherever it may be, um, basically with like flags in the ground, like drive between these flags and then drive as fast as you can to the next flags um, type of scenario. And I remember um, our very first qualifying run. Uh, so the way it works in Extreme, basically you get like one lap to try and remember where to go and then you're, you're into it, into the qualifying session straight away. So I remember the first qualifying run, uh, you know, jumping into the car absolutely peaking <laughs> with nerves and um and I sort of took off and it was this you know not silence but just the quiet it was and in this beautiful like serene desert landscape it was almost like <laughs> the most relaxed I'd been in a weird way I was like oh I can I can breathe now and you know we're out in this beautiful beautiful landscape and um it's nice and quiet so it was it was a bizarre yeah it was a bizarre feeling um to yeah to do that and a bit of a stark contrast. Um, but yeah, then uh, after that, you just, you know, it's, it's different noises that you're hearing now. You do hear the electric motor, but you also have a lot more, um, you can hear stones and gravel and that stuff hitting the car more. So you have different kind of cues you take. So it's more a case of just adapting to that, which happens pretty quickly. And then, I mean, the biggest challenge sometimes is, is then you're out there on the course and you're trying to make sure you remember in your lines and you don't get that much time to practice beforehand. Okay, so an EV is quieter than a regular car, but what does that mean for fans? Do they lose anything when it comes to the ambience or the atmosphere of the race? Well, Molly says when it comes to Extreme E, while it is quieter, for fans it's every bit as exciting as any other race. I don't think you would watch Extreme E and, and think that the, the action is any less because they're electric vehicles. So I, I think it's for sure a change that there's going to be lots of people that are resistant to or doubting but I think the best thing that we can do is is get out there and and prove and show that they're actually awesome and I don't think there's many people that have hopped in an electric car and not been impressed. <laughs> and the best part Dom is if they get stuck you could always provide the sounds. Let me have a go. <clears throat> vroom, vroom. 
feel like I'm there. And extreme is just one example of a sport where athletes are driving change. As in, driving change. Get it, Zach? Yeah, I got it. You know, some positive affirmation wouldn't hurt every now and then. Do you really want a compliment for your driving change joke? I definitely do. All right, well, well done. Thanks, Zach. I could tell you really meant that. And it turns out that there's a bit of a movement happening across many sports. Players in other sports like AFL and cricket are now starting to stand up and demand action. And it's having a real impact on how clubs operate. There's been a long history of you know, the influence of those um, high-profile athletes on influencing change has been something that's been important but is particularly important um, in the environmental context. This is Catherine O'Regan, CEO of the Sports Environment Alliance, a non-profit organisation that works with sporting clubs to help them minimise their environmental impact. And it's great when you see high-profile athletes, you know, take a stand and say we need to do more. Um, the, the next phase is definitely one where you can see that they will choose to be in places, in teams, which is aligned to their values and, um, and have, you know, an, again, another important impact on just shifting the dial to, to get clubs and organisations to move in one way or the other. So the power of that individual athlete can never be underestimated. Yeah, I've never really thought about tennis, cricket or AFL being energy intensive. So why should we be talking about sport and the environment? Well, Catherine has a great way of explaining why this is all important. Because the truth is, no matter whether you're playing indoor or outdoor sports, there's a lot of hidden energy costs that most of us wouldn't even think about. Whether it's running lights at night for training or trying to keep your indoor clubhouse cool, there's a bunch of ways sport is consuming power. The environment's important for sport in a range of ways and it impacts every sport, whether you're kicking your footy at the local oval, you know, there are definitely has been a significant impact as to the use of that oval with significant events, whether that's rain, flood, fire. Uh, So we want to try and keep people at the local level active. Just as much as, and I was talking to some people the other day from squash, and, you know, squash is an indoor game, and you might think, what's that got to do with the environment? But again, with heat rising, it's getting pretty hot and sweaty in some of those squash courts, and they need to think about how they keep their players active and cool, and so how they can use the right energy sources to keep the environment of those squash courts proper and appropriate and not having a health impact on the players is just as important as what they might be doing outside. So indoor, outdoor, community, elite, it's important to think about what you can do and the energy component is a significant player in that. Right, so if players are starting to demand action and if sport does have a lot of hidden energy costs... Are clubs actually starting to pay attention? Well, it turns out that yes, they are. And there's a really great example of that when it comes to football. I thought you said that you weren't going to talk about the Lions. Not that football, the the other football, as in soccer. There's a lot of things that go into the design of professional buildings. This is Brad Rouse, the CEO of Melbourne City Football Club. And Melbourne City are right now in construction of a new training facility out at Casey Fields in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. 
So the first thing that we look at in design is actually the flow for, for, for human use in terms of making sense that if athletes have to go from a gym to a rehab area, to a physio area, to a doctor's medical area, to the, to the hot and cold pools, for example, that all makes sense in terms of the, the flow. There's no point having certain buildings at one end of one corridor and the other, it doesn't make sense. So the design is very much first and foremost about um, the design for professional athletes. And then also the design is um, very much thought about in terms of the community side of things and what's what's um, um, the best for when kids come in or schools come in or local clubs come in and the design features for that. But amongst all that is also trying to make sure that we are being as smart as possible. So, you know, we're trying to do smart, clean energy solutions where possible. So we've um, got existing solar on site here, but part of the the great thing we're doing with Origin is to, that ultimately will end up at the end of this project having triple the solar capacity and, and storage capacities we had before. It sounds like there's a lot of work going into the design of this new building. Definitely, because for a professional sports team, you want your players to perform at their best. And Melbourne City is working closely with the local council and providers like Origin to make sure that the new building has all the facilities that emerging players might expect. And if you're a young professional footballer, one of those features that you might want your club to have is a place to park your electric car. Another thing we're doing is uh, vehicle charging stations. So there'll be four of those on, on campus here as well, which, is, which will be fantastic. So that's, that's a great initiative that um, uh, Origin are helping us out with. Um, above me on that, one of the big things we're doing is we have moved away from gas to electricity. In a, and so that's, that's a big part um, of this new building design. Um, and, and everything from the, you know, the small things that um, is minimum expectation now in any new buildings is you know the LED lighting. Um, we've got these uh, windows uh, system, you know the ones that set up very high to provide as much natural lighting as possible, so um, to avoid having to use um, artificial lighting as much as possible. Um, and smart modern insulation to reduce reliance on, on heating and cooling. So um, there's some of the things we're doing to start with, but I think you know like the rest of society, it's a constant learning and, and seeing where we can constantly improve. There's also a bunch of other interesting ways that a club like Melbourne City might consume energy. Because I don't know if you know this, Zach, but professional clubs really care about results. So do I, Dom, and it's time for your assessment. You've been assessing me? Yep, through every episode, and i got to tell you, it's not looking good. So where do you want this to start, with that flubber stuff from a few episodes ago? Uh, maybe later, because Brad actually has more to say. It turns out Melbourne City actually uses energy in a pretty interesting way to help monitor the performance of the team. Most people don't realise, but we, uh, all our players and their training sessions are all monitored. We can actually tell when they're going to get a cold before they know they're going to get a cold because we can see certain things will be down, um, certain measurements, whether it's acceleration or, or speed. So our sports scientists can tell, for example, um, how a player's tracking. We monitor um, how they're going 24 hours a day. We monitor their sleep. They, they put in a diary how they're feeling each morning they wake up, certain times during the day. So we can be on to a slight hamstring tear or something before they even know they've got that in their body. So that's the level of science we use. Um, every one of our training sessions is monitored by overhead uh, cameras um, and they look at all the movements. They also, um, that gets all recorded and dissected and it's also relayed so our counterparts in Manchester can look at those that footage real time and, and post as well. So um, that's just a, a small, example but technology um, is a significant part so we're all trying to get um, the absolute pinnacle of 
human performance in the, on on pitch, and uh, to get that is is trying to be smarter and understanding you know how important rest and recovery is as a, as just a training and getting that science right and every individual is different so we have to monitor and um, tailor programs for every individual to get the maximum out of that then there's a sports psychology part of it so there's all those components with it and uh, from a sustainability point of view you know, we need to use the same level of inquiry and science and everything to make sure we're, we're heading in the right direction in that space as well. What's unique about Melbourne City's new training facility is that it's actually being built alongside fields where community sporting clubs and local schools will play. So kids will grow up playing sports for school and being able to look over the fence to see their favourite professional footballers training nearby. Sounds like a great way to inspire a new generation. Indeed. You know, I wish I'd been able to see professional athletes train when I was a kid. I might have had a different career choice. Yes, I'm sure that your drama skills really had a place out on the sporting field. Hey, I'll have you know I was an esteemed young athlete. I made my high school cricket team's first 11. And how many people tried out for that team? 11. And truthfully, I still only just made it in. I'm sure you left your mark. Well, I was certainly best on ground with the orange slices. Anyway, Brad says this connection to the community is part of what Melbourne City liked about the club's location. It will help inspire a new generation of footballers who eventually might want to play at the club. But if you think about the energy transition and sustainability, if you're a young kid looking up to your favourite player, you're probably going to try to be like them. And if you see your favourite player arrive to training in an EV, well, you might want to own an EV too. The players play a big part in um, being role models and, and what they do, their behaviours are very much on show for, for, for kids out there around the community, particularly these kids coming on campus here and a very much almost touching distance of, of players on school holidays the players arrive and they're doing uh, they will notice what vehicles they're driving they will notice um, what they're wearing they will notice what the, how they're behaving all those things are, are very much true and um, we we have players where um, like anything this is a real passion point for them so the, the trick for us is to um, identify which players uh, are really passionate about um, climate change and sustainability and use those players as much as possible to try and impart that message to those kids, particularly in this area that we have a, um, so much exposure to. The choices that Melbourne City are incorporating into their new facility, like solar power and EV charges, are just a small part of the club's energy picture. But fans and players are already starting to expect teams to take a stand when it comes to sustainability. And Brad is keenly aware that if they want the best players, they need to be constantly looking for ways to improve. I think it's like all organisations for their employees, um, there's going to be expectation more and more in the future about the behaviours of that organisation, where they're purchasing, where they're, you know, on every, on every level, um, what are their practices, how are they producing things, how are they done, are they done sustainably, all those sorts of things that, are, that people are asking now and they are really becoming an expectation from employees and, and also from customers. So um, the opportunity for sport is to listen to that and recognise that and to change behaviours to fit the needs of what the employees are asking for and also um, the customers. So, um, and I think sport, because it has such a high exposure, there's, there's I think there's gonna be a greater expectation from the customers, from fans, um, but certainly from our um, staff and our players um, it will be something for the, the absolutely will be a time when a superstar player will help, come to a decision of which club they go to and they'll start to look at those sorts of metrics and which which club is actually doing better in um, corporate social responsibility for sustainability those sorts of things become significant factors in the decision making 
Dom, this is all really great, but what can we do as consumers? Because while it's great to see professional sporting clubs making changes, a lot of sport in Australia happens at a local level. Well, it's funny you should say that because Catherine does have some tips for local clubs who might want to figure out their own energy footprint. I know how you could reduce your energy footprint. I've been saying it all series. Two words, Christmas lights. How many times do I have to tell you, Zach, I'm not compromising on festive cheer? Here's Catherine. There's some really smart ways to do things um, and you can start at what I call almost just the the assessments phase. Think about how you're travelling to and from a game or from training, how you're using sporting equipment, how you're using things in an event perspective or a facilities. And if you think about some of those buckets, then you can start to actually just be more conscious and aware and assess, wow, you know, I didn't realise how many um, kilometres I'm travelling in the car every day to um, go to training or how do I get to the game of footy. So you can almost do an indicative assessment through to actually doing audits and energy audits of your facilities. And they take a little bit more rigour, but they actually can give you some really valuable information as to uh, bringing it to the front of what your energy use is and how you can mitigate some of those uses by doing things differently in the design or timing of events, a range of things, just to be you know a little bit more conscious of it. So sometimes it just starts with that awareness And then you can start to think about assessing it and then you can actually do physical audits of your your use to think, where am I using a lot of the energy and having the impact, the biggest impact on your carbon footprint? We're seeing more and more sporting organisations look at this. This is Stefano Bascali, the Head of Business Development at Origin Zero, which helps businesses reduce their carbon emissions through cleaner energy products and services. But even at the community level, I think that, um, you know, what a sporting organisation can do is really look at um, their energy demand, so how much energy they're using, um, and looking to optimise that. And that can be anything from behavioural things around the organisation, so the use of lighting, the use of air conditioning and heating, um, other appliances, anything that's energy intensive, and, and really looking to be disciplined around um, the usage of those assets. Um, and then obviously looking at the, the supply arrangements that are in place. So are they on the most optimal energy contract with their, their energy retailer? And, and that's certainly something that Origin helps organisations with, um, purely from a cost point of view, but also then a carbon perspective. So there, there are um, various um, renewable energy options that um, a sporting organisation can look at within their energy contract. So something like a green power could be something that um, a sporting organisation could look at including in their arrangement. As long as local clubs don't pick up your bad habits, Dom, when it comes to Christmas lights, I think we'll be in a good position. The only one with bad habits at Christmas time is you. When did you put your Christmas tree up last year again? Uh, Christmas Eve. Yeah, I'm going to let people make their own judgments about that. I think it's a more normal time than halfway through August. Yeah, you are right, actually. August was an outlier for me this year. I'm usually across by mid-July. Anyway, the hidden energy costs of local sports clubs are the ones we need to think more about. Because while the sport might be played outside, your club might be running fridges and freezers in the canteen, or having functions at night in the clubhouse. And all of this adds up, which is why Stefano says clubs might want to consider what energy assets, like solar, could be installed to help offset some of these ongoing costs. So typically the, the most common is solar. 
so on-site solar uh, on the roof, um, and that really can displace any daytime energy demand. Um, a lot of sporting organisations would run, you know, weekend events with, um, you know, energy usage being on the weekends, but also then, uh, you know, training perhaps in the evening during the week. Um, maybe solar is not best for that, but um, but certainly displacing that that weekend demand during the day. And then I think as we as we move into um, the world of electric vehicles, if you look at lots of sporting organisations, they've got big car parking footprints around them and I think that that could be a really great opportunity to implement EV charging stations as there's adoption of EVs um, you know families coming to the the sporting organization on the weekend could potentially plug in and charge their vehicle um, and if that's connected um, through to the the rooftop solar then um, you know that 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 energy can go towards charging the vehicle so um, there, there's a few different things, both in the on the supply side, but then on the demand side that I think um, if I was a sporting organisation, I'd certainly be looking at. This all sounds great, but even though solar's getting cheaper, a lot of local clubs run on really tight budgets, so they won't have any cash to spend. And a lot of them don't own the clubhouses either. So how can these clubs be a part of the energy transition? As it turns out, not everything needs to be expensive. Whether you own your own clubhouse or lease it, being part of the transition at a local level can be as simple as changing the way that your club uses energy. So making behavioural change within the organisation, and that could be lighting, air conditioning, heating, um, appliances, it could be things that they're using to warm up food, um, so it could be being more energy efficient with some of the appliances they have. I, I know the oven and the, the fridge I had at my football club were many 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 years old and i'm sure if we made that investment there'd be a payback that would be worthwhile um, in upgrading those facilities so i think i think looking internally first as a committee i'd be um, doing that and improving the energy efficiency um, i'd then be looking at the energy supply arrangement and looking at what is being paid for energy and then if there's a charter for sustainability is there some kind of renewable energy aspect that that organisation may want to include with its energy arrangement and talking to their energy provider around that I think would be sound. At the local club level it might depend if they own some of the facilities or they're a big user of the facilities that's when they can start talking about what is the energy consumption whether it's lighting whether it's water whether it's heat um, it might be that you change from when you train for an hour so you don't have to be you know, heating a room at a particular time it's it's an hour earlier or an hour later is it is it actually thinking whether they should transition to some renewables is it actually uh, something that they can do which might be using electronic vehicles um, to get the team from game to game rather than um, fuel vehicles so you can start to think in a range of ways that a club could look at their energy use quite clearly let's reverse back to molly you get it zach because she's a driver reverse back <sighs> let's move on well as a professional racing driver now racing evs She's really on the front line of this energy transition in her sport. And those changes are not isolated to what happens on the track. It's really starting to have an impact at home as well. There's a whole range of, of energy sources and I think it's also made me, you know, think about more about the energy used in the house and, and, and where you buy your power from and, and what they're doing, um, you know, about 
sustainable energy and, and kind of, I think just being a bit more responsible yourself and, and realizing that, that you've got some ownership in what you do as well. And it, I mean, it's only a small part, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to stick your head in the sand after you, it's a good pun actually, <laughs> when you're out there in, in the desert and um, you know, really seeing seeing the scale of, of what we need to, to accomplish. And um, yeah, it's a bit um, yeah, hypocritical to not then try and take some steps yourself, knowing that you know, there's, not, there's not one way you can just turn around tomorrow and be absolutely perfect in everything, but, but be part of that forward progression. The energy transition is affecting everyone. Whether it's in the vehicle you drive or the power you use in your home, change is coming and it's coming fast. But getting to net zero is a little more complex than flicking a switch. So how can we make the change to a renewable grid without sending us all into darkness? And will 100% renewables be enough? All of a sudden the wind picks up and the, the sun shines. Um, we definitely don't want them to displace renewables and that's something we're very mindful of. They're, they're there to play their part to support more renewables um, and solar. So what is the show that questions everything you thought you knew about energy? And it's brought to you by Origin. Production and scripting by the team at Lawson Media. If you'd like to find out more about how to transition your sporting club or business, we'll leave a link to Origin Zero in the episode show notes. You can learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes at originenergy.com.au forward slash so what. Or just hit subscribe in the podcast app you're in right now. And if you'd like to hear my full review of Dom's performance this series, just shoot me a message and I'll flick you over the PDF. Just a warning though, it is 73 pages long. Jeez, is there anything positive in there? There's uh, some neutral comments around page 60. I look forward to reading them. This series is hosted by me, Dom Fay, and Zach Mander. We can't wait to speak with you next time.